0: Oh, who did Blazing Saddles? Now I'm just like, I'm just spiraling spiraling here. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, thank you. It's just terrible. And I have, once again, so this is the thing. I do the introduction and then I start hearing myself because I didn't mute my own dang thing so I can watch the stream. I'm excited for this conversation. This is going to be possibly (laughs) the most contentious. Connect this ever uh, with uh, Dane Jasper, the CEO of Sonic in California. Welcome to the show, Dane. Thanks, Chris. Good to see you. It's good to see you. You're looking magnificent in the lighting today.
1: Oh, thank you. I got a new ring light. I'm very thrilled.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's working. It's working for you. Uh, We also have Jeff Christensen. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Chris, good to be here. Thank you. You may know Jeff from numerous interviews in the past with me from his, uh, his TEDx career, from uh, Entry Point Networks. Uh, he's uh, done a lot of work with, um, with Ammon and another communities to be named later in terms of building a specific type of open access network that we'll be talking about. Uh, and then we also have our returning champion, Travis Carter from U.S. Internet. Welcome back, Travis.
2: Whoa, whoa. Thanks, Chris.
0: And I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self Reliance. I, I host this, at least until we can find someone better. And I am very excited to spend the day talking about open access, but we're gonna start by just a quick survey of something that the current FCC and uh, Chairman Pai uh, got wrong, something that they got right. And I'll start with you, Dane. Uh, what did they get wrong? What did they get right?
1: It's certainly been an interesting time with this administration. I, I, I'd start with what they got right. Um, they really focused on a deployment agenda and, uh, and there's a few items that were positive there. The one that really stands out for me is the reforms around one touch, make ready to assure carriers access to polls in a more streamlined way. So I'd say they got that right as they thought about deployment wrong. Um, you know, they're really engaged in destroying competitive local exchange carriers by eliminating the entire, um, bones of the 96 telecom act. And, uh, and the core of that is unbundled network elements and uh, access to the legacy copper and intercity fiber. And uh, setting those aside uh, last month was just a really bad decision.
0: That's something that, that we were we haven't covered it here. I think a lot of people may not have heard about it. So I just want to spend a second. And this is this is where companies like you are able to lease, or actually, you, the incumbent is required to lease you service, um, so that you're able to connect customers without having to build a whole new infrastructure. Which was the whole framework of the 1996 Act, which was gutted slowly and quickly over the years.
1: Yeah, it's a. I mean, this is a huge loss for competitive carriers. And you know what? What the Act recognized was that. You had these monopoly facilities that were paid for by ratepayers. This is copper lines to every home and fiber between cities. And unbundling that, making that available to new market entrants would facilitate competition and for us deployment. So we will deploy first, you know, a VDSL service, you know, it might be a 20, 40, 100 megabit service over copper while we build fiber to the home. And, uh, so the loss of that, uh, framework is, uh, is a big hit for competitive carriers.
0: Yes. And poorly covered. So Jeff, this is supposed to be a lightning round. I've already failed at my hosting job to keep it a lightning round. Yeah. What, are, what have they gotten right? What did they get wrong?
3: Um, I think they've, what they got right was, um, fu- uh, giving help to communities and density areas that need help with financing and funding. Uh, what they got wrong was 25 by three or continue to get wrong. It was 25 by three um, fiber should be the basis of almost everything. Maybe not everything, but almost everything.
0: Yeah. Not only is it wrong, they've locked it into for 10 years. Some of the people yeah. getting RDOF money may be getting 25, three subsidized in 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Travis, what did they get wrong? What did they get right?
2: Well, I think Jeff God, Jeff took my wrong. You know, I, as we've alluded to in the other uh, conversations, I think 25 by three is terrible, especially using public funds for that. You know, especially with the advent of gigabit over 16 years ago, don't you think we should be deploying that as the minimum today? But what the uh, Trump FCC, Chris, did right, the six gigahertz spectrum, the entire block open for wi fi um, I think will be one of the biggest uh, leave behinds, the high, uh, the high end of the five nine spectrum that's available now for Wi-Fi, And I think the CVRS auction strategy was really well done. And the, 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 you know, the allocation of spectrum for small carriers in the three, six, five range. So that's what I think they did right. And so, I have to copy Jeff on the wrong. 25, three is a joke. As far as I'm concerned,
0: I, I, have no disagreement with any of those claims. I would um, use the moderator's privilege to say that um, the thing I think they got the most right that I was totally surprised by is the tribal priority window for 2-5. Uh, uh, I think that's really important. I think we desperately need to uh, create more spectrum assets for tribals, um, tribal governments. Um, the thing that I, another thing that I think other people may not have caught up on was uh, when they did the auction for CAF2, they made it very transparent. And having access to that, I think, has really been a benefit for people to study and and get a sense of what happened. Um, And that's really nice. Uh, What they got wrong, I think, um, so many things, Travis, <laughs> so many things. <laughs> All right, let's hear. Um, no, but I'll just I'll focus on the most recent one, which is this nonsense about overbuilding in which they basically, um, particularly Commissioner O'Reilly, is just lying or, or getting his facts way wrong in terms of accusing one local company of overbuilding another. This is something that we will be talking about in the future, um, because this is something I think we're going to hear a lot about, whether or not government should be creating competition. And how much we should spend to make sure the government doesn't accidentally create competition by mistake, um, because Republicans right now are pushing to spend a lot on that, and I don't think it's worth it at all. Um, So the topics that we want to get into are going to be dealing with open access, but there's one other thing I wanted to cover because I think Jeff has interesting ideas on this, and Dane, you've been very outspoken, Um, bandwidth caps. Comcast has announced new bandwidth caps. I kind of think it's a surprise. Uh, many of us thought they did not have bandwidth caps in New England because they faced so much Fios competition in those in those suburban areas, and they've decided to embrace bandwidth caps anyway. So, Dane, um, let me come to you first once again and just ask, um, what's your take on this?
1: I mean, uh, bandwidth caps are a side effect of a failed competitive market. You know, you have an oligopoly, a, a duopoly at best, but for higher speed services, the kinds of services that users of more uh, download or upload would want are generally a cable monopoly in most markets. And so, you know, this is uh, rent seeking behavior. It's, it's opportunistic. And the fact of the matter is the, the sort of cost of goods sold, the, the internet uh, content people are consuming and creating, Um, is de minimis compared to the cost of the infrastructure. And whether the lights are blinking or not blinking, or you're sending or not sending data over the line, it doesn't really matter. And uh, so it's it's a pretty transparent kind of cash grab.
0: Jeff, you're a huge fan of bandwidth caps, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yeah, I I am actually a a fan of this because I think it... um... It accelerates the demise of this model. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we had more cheers than jeers from, from this decision. It'd be interesting to see what their data, I mean, you know, I want to give them some credibility on making the decision that there's some business reason, but, I, you know, I think we all know there's probably not. And that they're, because, you know, I spent a lot of time in New England and, and in many places they've got a monopoly and um so they're behaving like a monopolist and they're they're looking after their interests and not really thinking about the subscribers interests so i think it's you know it's short-sighted and you know we'll we'll see where it goes
0: and travis um is this something you react in the same way Where much like jeff you're just excited to have one more thing to um have comcast driving their own customers into your arms
2: yeah, I mean, it's the, one of the greatest marketing pieces ever, you know, if, if the, I, I commend Comcast and I highly encourage them to keep doing it, you know, because it just increases our market share in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul.
0: Now, I wanna, like I said, we're gonna devote time to this overbuilding nonsense. Um, not that I think, I mean, let me just be clear. I think it's important to have a good debate and be honest about the role of government in creating competition. I don't think that's what's been happening with this talk of overbuilding we're hearing about suddenly from Republicans on the Hill and from FCC commissioners. But Jeff, in, in the in the, first, the short version of this conversation, what's your reaction when you hear this talk about overbuilding being bad? So yeah, I went
3: out and looked. So I haven't had my ear to the ground enough to hear the, the specific sources. So I am interested in hearing from you, um, is it like Marsha Blackburn or, or who's, who's
0: in this case? It's well, it's Commissioner O'Reilly, it was raising some issues, um, from um, um, Wyoming, and um, but then the that led then to Republicans, uh, specifically, um, well, I, now I'm now doubting myself as to who it was exactly, but um, commissioners on the energy or the um, oh.
3: Oh, it's okay. what happens
0: when you're... Yeah, so the Uh, ENC... Energy and Commerce Commission. It is Energy and Commerce. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Then I was like, wait, but where's the telecom? I get so confused between all the state committees. They change them every two years in the the federal level. And anyway, ENC is like the major house um, uh, committee on this stuff. And the Republicans there are calling for a major audit of ReConnect, uh, which enrages me because it's like, let's investigate all these small carriers that have gotten a little bit of money um, to yeah. do this thing. And let's not investigate the billions of dollars that have gone to Frontier and Windstream, which have declared bankruptcy in the course of getting billions of dollars or AT&T, which appears not to have made a connection better for a single person in Mississippi after getting a quarter billion dollars. Um, no, that's not auditable, but let's audit these these small programs, uh, the, the small grants. Um, so I just... I'm livid about it. Um, and that's more or less the issue um, is, is whether or not government programs are, money is going to carriers that are then building in an area where there's already a company that claims to be offering more than 25.3.
1: Yeah. Well, and Chris, I'll, I'll say, I think one of the roots of this is the use of the word overbuilding. Overbuilding does not mean you're building too much. It does not mean you're paying for a network twice. Uh, you know, traditional use of the term overbuilder and overbuilder just means someone who enters a market when there is already an incumbent. And so you might have a cable company uh, that's providing cable TV. And then another cable company comes along, builds a cable plant and offers cable TV. They are considered an overbuilder. They're not a first market entrant. It's a second market entrant. And what I think O'Reilly and others have done is torture this term and turn it into uh, overbuilding is bad it means we've built too much or we're throwing too much subsidy money at something and o'reilly has some good examples where you know one or two school districts have said well the city's building a fiber network but let's also get one from the fed and let's get subsidy money from that as well and and that is waste in the program and it is appropriate to label and find waste and eliminate it but the word overbuilding isn't the right way to define that overbuilding just means competition
0: i want to just say that dane you're someone who i trust you get your facts right and so i'm going to assume that that's correct in the examples i've seen o'reilly site it's often where it's a private company which anytime i've looked into it that company's been charging a ton of money yeah. and the district decides it would be cheaper to build their own network but i'm sure that like so, I said, no, it, you're someone who gets your facts right.
1: No, you're right. And th- there was a, an example used, which was a district, which was trying to get federal subsidy money mm-hmm. when the city was already building a fiber network to them. It wouldn't be there for a year. So they said, we'll get subsidy money and we'll end up with two networks. And won't that be great? And, and that is waste in the program. And he's correct in citing that. But there, are, there is another example where a private carrier received subsidy money at some point in the past, built a network to the schools, hasn't fully recouped their cost. And now another bidder has offered cheaper service than continuing service with that carrier who got subsidy money. And, and O'Reilly says, you know, we shouldn't pay for a new market entrant to build a new network. Well, he's right because the first market entrant should be able to beat the new market entrant on price. <laughs> and you uh, you know that's you, know, you, sh- you need to have an open procurement process and you need to keep the incumbent carrier, even if they were subsidized, honest with regards to the rates that they get. And um, you know, this is, is not the same as a, a program uh, like the NTI BTOP or ARDOF or one of these programs that's seeking out unserved premises. Mm-hmm. This is the E-rate program that is seeking to connect every school at the lowest possible cost. And if someone new comes along and says, we're gonna do it cheaper than those other guys, We, the government, the public that's spending this money, we should welcome that rather than making sure we're still lining the pockets of the person who got the grant five years ago.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. And I would say that I agree with Commissioner O'Reilly's sentiment and others that there's limited funds. We want to make sure they're spent in the most effective way possible. Um, So Travis, I want to give you a chance. If there's anything you stay as far away from this stuff as possible. Um,
2: (laughs) Well, since, uh, since we historically don't qualify for anything, but I am very sympathetic to a private company that has taken out a substantial amount of debt to build a network and then have public funds being utilized, to, I guess, overbuild or compete with you at a, at a reduced rate, you know, that, that would hit close to home, you know. The other side of it, though, is I'm never worried about it because you know we should be able to provide a better quality service than any of anyone to, that wants to come in and overbuild, which I think, quite frankly, discourages people from doing it. And then, lastly, who's the referee to decide if you know when and where these dollars should be spent, and if they are if they're doing it in a malicious fashion because the current private company maybe is charging ten dollars more than somebody the referee thinks they should. Who, whose decision is that? You know, the market is the market at the end of the day.
0: Right. This is I mean, the E rate program has a competitive bidding process which is supposed to deal with, with some of those concerns. But actually this I think this discussion in some ways really leads well into our discussion about open access, because it's a discussion about, you know, building these different networks on top of each other uh, in ways that may not be necessary if we have open infrastructure that can support uh, the connectivity. Both Dane and Travis go way back to the day in which uh, there was open access, there was a telephone network that effectively anyone could use and, and gain access to customers. And what we're gonna be talking about for the rest of the show is in some ways, If we could rebuild that, and as we are rebuilding that in some cities, uh, a common uh, fiber network that can be used by multiple carriers, how should we do it? What are the little, the little nuances that we need to cover? Um, so maybe we could just firstly lay out um, the approach that, that Ammon has used, Jeff, um, Ammon Idaho, which um, is using a specific kind of open access that uh, Dane will later be critiquing. Uh, but we'll start with, uh, with discussing this approach, because it's, it's usually the one people are pretty excited about right now.
3: Can we give you an overview quickly? Yeah, so
0: yeah. Just do a, you know, you know, thumbnail sketch.
3: Yeah. So, um, and I, as you think about overbuilding, I think it really asks the question: What's wrong with the system? If we're going to fix something, what should we fix? What's broken about the way we're doing delivering these services today and this and the infrastructure? So, what Ammon has done is um, partnered with Entry Point. We we developed the technology. And it's the difference between what we're doing and say Utopia, Utopia has got, I think Utopia is right now the biggest open access consortium in the country and they've got 15 service providers. And it's what we call manual open access. Um, What Ammon's got is software defined automated open access. So the consumers in Ammon they pay for the infrastructure the separately. Subscribers, Jeff. Subscribers, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
3: pay, the subscribers pay for the infrastructure independently. They pay for the maintenance and operation of the network independently. And they pay this the ISP independently. And the magic in AM and at the ISP, well, at the service provider level, is they, they can switch dynamically. So if you're... If you're frustrated on cost or service, whatever, or your service goes out, you, you just switch. You it's a web portal, and you get in and you move.
0: So if Travis wants to jump in, just tell him briefly what he would have to do to offer service on there, and then he can ask a question or two to clarify. And once Travis gets it, I'll be sure that our our audience has a sense of it.
3: Yeah. So. All the providers have there's a provider portal, there's a network operators portal, and there's a subscriber portal. And the service provider would basically um, get a presence of what we call the provider edge. So you'd be plugging in to the provider edge and basically you're going to occupy a port on a, a switch. And the software, if a subscriber wants to move from Dane's ISP to Travis's ISP, they unsubscribe from Dane and they hit the subscribe button under Travis's um, icon. And the software shuts down one port and opens up Travis's port.
2: So I guess the question is, so every home has the same equipment in it. Yep. there's no there's no technical advantage for one person or another you said that the the homeowner contracts or pays for that who, who owns the who owns the fiber in the ground and the and the customer experience at the home
3: so that um it, it's a combination so in Ammon's case the city ultimately is the the place of truth for the subscriber but they you know, as we iterate through this software, the software has become increasingly powerful at helping the subscriber to know where their issue is. And, and, and that really the part of the goal of software-defined networking is to drive automation so that everything's transparent to the subscriber. And so if, if it's an issue with the ISP, the subscriber will know it. If it's an issue with physical infrastructure, the subscriber will know, everybody will know it, everybody, all the stakeholders.
0: So yeah. if it's a physical problem, the city is the one that sends a crew.
2: Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm trying to understand. So like I just got a text from my outside plant manager of some fiber that was just dug up a few minutes ago. Our crews are on the way to splice it, fix it. We've already sent notifications out to the affected customers, giving them an ETA, you know, owning the end-to-end experience. They'll be back up and running here probably in about a half hour. So if I'm this virtual ISP in Ammond and I'm connected in and... Susie's internet isn't working because there's a fault in the street, am I calling somebody down at the city and trying to get them to go fix it?
3: Yeah. Um, In reality, you would find with this network that you're not gonna get very many calls. And I know you're you're used to owning the whole experience for your subscribers, but in this case, the city does a fantastic job of owning the customer experience. And the combination of fiber, a very well-designed network, and a bunch of automation makes the customer, the subscriber experience, really elegant. And I think if you talk to the subscribers, that's exactly what they would tell you. So that doesn't mean problems don't occur. Yeah,
2: no. When they do,
3: it's the it, the fiber department in Ammon is addressing them, and they do it very effectively.
2: Okay, so so the independent per group of people who actually fix all these things. So you know, Dane and I, who are ISPs on this network, basically say whenever they show up is when it gets fixed, right? Because we don't can, we won't control that experience. Right. And and the and the customers are used to that as, as an okay answer.
3: They because the, the subscribers know um, okay. If it's an ISP issue, it becomes obvious fairly quickly.
2: Yeah. All right, and Dana. And Dana, I don't mean to monopolize this, but I got like a million questions. So the one fundamental question I have here is: so why, so why wouldn't I just come in? I am an ISP, charge a dollar a month till all the other ones who are out of business, and then own the market.
3: Well, it might work temporarily, but it's we've lowered the barriers to entry so much that. Um, you're going to have to do that over and over again because immediately another ISP is going to come on to the network. You could and you could come on from Minneapolis. We can make that happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, th- this is what happened in the dial-up world at least in Minneapolis is there was kind of this unspoken rule of dial-up internet cost 19.95 a month. And everyone came on at 19.95 a month and this one guy Henry came in at 9.95 a month and blew us all out of the water and um it just, it upheaved the whole market. So I'm just curious because I feel the barrier of entry, there needs to be a barrier of entry in any business. If we want to open a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Subway, there's some barrier to get in. This sound, this sounds like it's simply just connect at the IX and we're on. Is that how it works? Yeah.
3: I mean, it's pretty inexpensive. And if you have some level of um, sophistication, then you're, you're going to connect pretty easily.
2: Oh, okay. All right. That's that's my fundamental and question. And in Ammon,
3: um, you know, the rates did drop to nine ninety nine for the ISP for symmetrical gig uh, two years ago, but there are still four ISPs on the network, and two more are coming on. And so, we didn't
0: see it drop. I wonder. I mean, I it, wonder sort why. Of, it sort of hit that hit that level, and then it sort of settled. Right. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of fluctuations since then. Mm-hmm. No. Nope.
2: Hmm. Uh, hmm. It seems it seems odd to me. Why in the world would I get on there and compete for a nine dollar product? It just seems because you know your your tech support, your billing, your customer service, all those fixed expenses you have doesn't matter about the fiber.
0: So let me let me let me put that, and then I'll bring Dane into this too explicitly. You know, put yourself back. Fifteen years ago, when you were building this business and and trying to figure out how to get more customers, and um, you know, without um, being a, with being limited in how fast you could build physically, if you suddenly, you know, had access to a pool of a hundred thousand customers um, to try to like pull in some subscribers using the fixed assets you already had, would that be attractive?
2: Well, it might be, but we see, we've lived through this model before, so every time, Cinch Cent- or well, who was it at the time? Quest had a, a problem the customers didn't understand that it was CenturyLink's Quest problem. It was our problem. Right. And, and, and that's where between the price issue and not owning the infrastructure. So you can control the entire customer experience. I think it would be challenging to maintain a high customer service level. It, maybe I'm wrong. I'm just, I think, I think if I think your it, full
0: experiences with Quest yeah. or in Dane's case with at and you might be a little bit, um, yeah. you know, Gun shy because of how many problems. Well, no, no,
2: it's, it's just we've yeah we've lived this already, and and it was it was not good.
3: So what you're saying is you've lived through a software defined network that's open access before? Who deployed sure, yeah. that?
0: Well, no, no, 1F, no, you know, no one F B.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Because I was thinking we were the first to do it.
2: No, no, this was back in the nineties, Dane. I think you're on, uh, you're muted, bud. But this was back in the nineties when we bought phone lines.
0: It's you know oh, calling. It. It, Jeff, you know,
1: in the in the era of DSL resale, you know, when ISPs were selling DSL on the incumbent telephone companies' networks, that was a software-defined network. You'd get a PVC um, for each customer, and the customers could switch ISPs at will, um, and that was 1998. So that model is not new, per se. And um, I think the point Travis makes also is an interesting one, which is fundamentally, there'll be just a race to the bottom and there'll be a one dollar provider who doesn't answer the phone. And, you know, in some way, in the long run, they hope to game some money out of the system. The price will go up in the long run or something like that. And so, you know, I look at networks like the Utopia network with 15 providers and I think 88,000 homes passed or so. Um, a, a, a smaller network like Emon, and as a as a service rider, I can't see the point of entering. And um, so that's so the struggle. Let me,
0: and- let me jump in there for a second, Dane, um, because I think something that you just said. I don't want to. I don't want to um, trivialize it. Um, but one of the uh, things that I think cities are looking to do is not just to say, "Hey, midnight," you know, um, uh, midnight riders no. Boy, today's not a good day for the words for me, but um, but you know the uh, you don't want you don't want to just have any old person come in and suddenly be like, "I'm gonna sell this for a dollar. Cities will likely be vetting this. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is cities often have contracts with ISPs in which they will answer the phone in a certain number of rings and you can take an ISP off of the system for non-performance. And so you know some of these things, I, I absolutely agree. These are real problems that could really poison the well for everyone, but I also feel like some of these things can be solved yeah but I, I, I
2: sorry real quick, Dane. I think Dane and I could enter the Ammon network at a dollar a month and provide as good a service as anyone that's there right now. And as soon as there's nobody, it's the old Starbucks game or the gas hey, but station. Try to, so
0: so the second that then you try to take advantage of that and you say, you know what now, our price is going up to twelve. Well, then I could I'm like, hey, Time for Mitchell ISP. Here I come. Sure, baby.
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I like, I like Dane's thing. It's just a race to the bottom. So maybe for uh, six months, you're the $20 guy and then you're back to the $2 guy mm-hmm. because you're, cause you haven't paid for anything. All, all it is, is a cross connect and you're on, I mean, that's a genius. This, this is a
0: benefit, not a buck, uh, if but for driving the prices down that low. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you're looking for.
1: And if, um, You know, I think what Travis is highlighting and and what I agree with is that, you know, there is an opportunity for a bunch of volatility and confusion and consumers being sort of taken for a ride, (laughs) et cetera. On the other side, they might get great deals from time to time. I'd also say what you end up with is vanilla. Everybody gets the same product. There is no opportunity for innovation in the product itself. It is I'm so
0: glad you said that. Because we actually have a question in the chat asking this very question. And, right, well- and in some sense, I mean, if I understand correctly, I don't want to say what I'm about to say, I don't want it to to negatively Um, to be negative toward Utopia. But one of the things I think about the Utopia technology that they're using is that people are competing over delivering vanilla. And Jeff, one of the things that your company is aiming to do is to make sure that we have Baskin Robbins basically coming in. Um, I should have said a, a local um, you know, um, fresh to market, farm to market, dairy, um, uh, ice cream. So that has lots of different flavors. Uh, but, but Jeff, how do how do they differentiate in Ammon? And what do you expect to see as you're going through the next version of software to allow differentiation of services? And bear in mind that this is specifically going to um, preempt Dane's next uh, points that I really want to get to in terms of how he would do open access. Because I think the way you would differentiate could not happen on Dane's. And that's where I want to take the conversation over time.
2: Yeah.
3: So, you know, the ISP reaction to the Amman network is pretty consistent, but we didn't design the network thinking about... Um, we we care about all stakeholders, but we really designed it thinking, what does the customer want from their network and what's missing today? And and so when we think about open access, the traditional definition does just relate to the ISP. It just means you've got multiple ISPs to choose from. We've just automated that interaction. And Ammon was the first where you could do it on demand. Um, You know, Dane, Dane has an example from the 90s. I mean, S, the SDM protocol wasn't implemented until 2008. So SDN under the current SDM protocol didn't come around until 2008. That's the protocol we're using. Um, so, but to us, open means that the network is a set of resources that are opened both to innovation and to consumers to, to get what they want from the network and then to provide inputs back into the network. And so our definition is probably a radical definition of open access, meaning we're not really that excited about the, the ISP is a thing we've solved and Ammon's experience has been really positive. um, as far as the ISP stuff goes, the stuff we're excited about is everything else that will happen across the network. And that will be public safety stuff. And, and, you know, Everything we're doing over the top today, giving people the ability to do it on demand at layer two, um, whether it's telemedicine or public safety or or whatever, that's the stuff we're excited about. And we think that's the real um, innovation that we've got here. So, you know, I understand ISPs can get frustrated. We do really, I think what we're doing is we're forcing the ISP to automate uh, because they won't be profitable if they don't.
0: And to be clear about that, because I think this is important, is that you're trying to take the ISP and lessen their power and give that power to the user in ways that um, that I don't see other um, open access approaches necessarily doing because at that point, the ISP um, in, in Dane's edition, which I will, I'll give you a second to, to describe your your ideal Dane for open access. I feel like the ISP more clearly owns the user and will define what users can do. And yeah. I'm not... That's not necessarily bad. Um, Dane, you may have reasons for why that's actually really good. Um, but I think that's one of the differences that I, I think we should just make sure we're clear on. And, and Jeff, I mean, I think you're placing a bet that we are going to see new services that much like in 2005, we did not see a use for Twitter. I know some people still today don't. But like there are applications I fundamentally believe that will be developed, that could be developed using the fact that you're able to do more layer two stuff without having to ask anyone's permission. That's pretty exciting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You will see next year things you can do across this network. You can't do across other networks. So that's my check on me in a year, Chris, to make sure we achieve that. But you'll see innovative things that are only possible across this kind of network. Uh, coming out. So, you know, I don't want to diminish at all. I think Dane and Travis are both I'm sure running great businesses and I I know they care about their customers, which ultimately is a big part of what we're trying to deliver in terms of experience. Our definition of the problem has a lot to do with monopoly control. um, And we think the old model is siloed and it's very difficult for customers to change in a siloed model really what we've done is torn down the barriers for customers if they don't like the experience they're having they can dynamically change and the data doesn't back up what both travis and dane are worried about which is somebody doing it for a dollar to run the market down to nothing and then take over that that has not proven to be the case
0: and let me, let me I wanna to transition to Dane's model to make sure we have plenty of time to discuss all these options. But I wanna take a moment to say, this is very serious. And the issue here that cities need to pay attention to is that Dane and Travis represent thousands of people that started these businesses and then were burned in part because they did not control the infrastructure. Ammon is doing a really great job of professionally making sure the infrastructure remains strong. Cities that don't take this seriously, who may skimp on how fast they respond to a fiber cut or other problem, they're going to create a world of problems for themselves because ISPs have been burned before and and they're not going to stick around if that's what happens in that city on that network. So, Dane... Um, I'm, I'm coming to you, I'm, uh, I'm the mayor uh, that has unlimited power and I wanna build an interesting open access network. How do you have me do it?
1: Well, it's, I think it's important first to frame the problem. And the, the problem is that the residents of your city have bad internet, limited choices, uh, usage caps we talked about, um, they're paying too much. The customer service is poor. They're suffering outages. And, and, and the community is not well-connected and well-served. And that is a, a political pain point. And I, I really think it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of legislation in cities that makes it very challenging for communities to invest in their own infrastructure. I think that's really wrongheaded. Um, if Travis or myself build a great network, there will not be a political will to spend a bunch of public money to build a network over the top of us and compete with us. If on the other hand, you've got a cable operator with usage caps and some slow old DSL and and everybody in town agrees the internet is awful, that public should be able to buy a network. And when they begin that process, they hire a consultant and they start talking to other communities and they look at entities like Chattanooga's EPB Utopia, Amon, they look at successful models, L-U-S, and they say, well, these are successful models, they're working, they got this built, um, and so we should do it that way. And I think they go too far and they do more than they need to, and they end up with a lesser outcome. And, And what I mean by that is, you think we're gonna build a publicly funded, open access network, and then immediately, your consultants say, well, that should be a lit network. Your equipment vendors say, well, here's some GPON equipment that we'd love to sell you. Here's the equipment that's going to go in the home. And you know, here's all the middleware and the billing platform and all the bits and bobs that put the stuff together. Suddenly you've got a very complex network. You also have a network that delivers vanilla. It delivers today's symmetric gigabit product to the same CPE in every home. What I would argue is that an investment in a dark fiber network that is simply glass, no uh, electronics or optronics in that network at all, and then invite service providers in to light it creates some really unique positive benefits. One, you know, you you don't have the complexity. You don't uh, need a a billing platform, a, a provisioning platform. Um, it becomes a much simpler network to build, and uh, a, a much simpler network to budget to build. So can uh, I the other ask, side is. It just a
0: clarifying us. question.
1: Sorry, go ahead, Chris.
0: A clarifying question. So, um, so this is a network that would actually um, effectively, like, stub out at the house, and um, you would attach them there, and it would effectively go back to some kind of like locked area where ISPs could go and and turn it on. Yeah, um, so think,
1: think fiber jack or two fiber jacks in the house that go back to a central hut. Service providers locate equipment in the hut. They put in the equipment that they'd like to deploy. Um, They provide customer equipment to plug into the jack. And I might deploy GPON technology, which is capable of delivering one gigabit symmetric. And I might not do television. Travis might come along uh, six months, a year later, and deploy XGS Pawn equipment. And he might (laughs) deliver 10 gigabit and uh, an IPTV platform. Someone else might come along and provide voice and home security or something else. And the point is that the service provider now has a point of innovation and a point of control, a point of provisioning. They can automate and manage their network in the ways that they Mm-hmm. Uh, Manage and owned and operated network that they might build like Travis and we do in the markets that we serve elsewhere. And I look at Utopia, which is an open access lit fiber network with about 15 service providers on it. And they literally have a spreadsheet that's like, here's the 15 providers, here's the five different speeds, and here's their price. And it's like, they're all the same and it's all very vanilla.
0: I think they would, they would object to that. I mean, I can tell you that, for instance, X-Mission, does things differently than some of the others do. And they, and if you talk to her, for instance, Jesse Harris, who I want to have on this show eventually, who does a lot of writing about closely, um, I, I would just say that we can, we can generalize and say that we would like to see more differentiation, but I don't want to pretend that they are actually all the same.
1: Well, so the, the, the other side of it is you're adding a whole bunch of unnecessary complexity. I'll say that fiber to the premise networks themselves are actually really simple. It's an optical cable that goes from the home back through a number of splice points to a central location. And if a city can run a sewer system or a water system, they can run a glass passive optical network. The stuff that goes on top of that, the the customer premise equipment, the provisioning mechanisms, the, the interconnection up to the Internet, all the customer service that goes along with that is complex. And the entities that will tell you, hey, small city, you should do that, are the consultants that are going to earn a lot of money helping you, your own city staff who would like to nation build and build a department for themselves, and the equipment vendors who want to sell you all the gear to run the darn thing. And you're a small volume buyer who's going to try and run this whole platform. And, uh, and it's unnecessary, and you end up with less innovation and an unwillingness to enter the market from the majority of serious and large service providers. So you think about Google, whose open access uh, projects in um, Huntsville is dark fiber. Uh, they have another one, uh, I think, in Idaho that is dark conduit, empty conduit. I and, one of the other eyes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, so... You know, and I think about where would we be willing to go and what would we bring that would be useful? Why Why is it worth us going to do that? So, and Dane, let me innovation in the services.
0: Right. And, I, and first of all, let me say that as we dig into this, I really want to see this happen. I want to see the empirical results. And so um, one of the questions that we have from a colleague of Jeff's. <laughs> <laughs> to be transparent, is um is noting that that um in dark fiber instances, it does not seem like we get robust competition. It seems like effectively it's one entity uses it. You mentioned Google Fiber. Travis has been very clear, he would never enter an open network where Google is. <laughs> and also Travis is an Ethernet guy, just FYI.
2: <laughs> well, my, my position on Google was pretty as, as you and I talked about over our last round of chicken wings is this. I just checked while we're out here. I mean, we're pushing about 80 gigabit to Google right now for YouTube, YouTube TV, and all these other services. You think for a minute, I want to compete with these guys on the access side, who knows what happens on the content side. I'm not saying there's anything might happen, but it sure could, which could really impact our business as a whole. So that's why if Google's there, I'm out.
0: And so that's the sort of thing they like, and so Dan, yeah. I mean, I want to say that this is a very good question in terms of where we've seen some dark fiber approaches. We haven't seen the robust competition. If this question goes to me, I would say that we haven't seen it in a large enough city to really know what happens. But how do you respond to it? So
1: what we've seen is that the the vast majority of municipalities that have moved ahead with open access networks have been convinced by their consultants and equipment vendors that they need to light that network. And what if, cities are those, Dane? What are you talking about?
0: Well Am Idaho. all the retail. Well, a lot of the retail oh, has the
3: lowest so um, Ammon has the lowest prices in the world, according to the connectivity report and they've got a 63 percent take rate that's climbing every month. So where's the calamity that um, Fast Company magazine says Ammon's the best fiber optic network in the country.
0: Sorry, Is Jeff the I, I don't think. For this purpose, I don't feel like we should litigate Ammon specifically. I think Dane's making a point, which I think is unnecessarily cynical, and I'd like to reframe it to address it, which is that consultants um, who care most about their... Interests of their clients are worried about offering a dark fiber model that they haven't seen proven anywhere. It's classic chicken and the egg. Um, And so I think we have a lot of cities that would be interested in this, but there's not a lot of evidence for it. And so, you know, Dane is someone who I brought on the show because um, I like talking to him, but also (laughs) because he um, I, I take very seriously that, that if he thinks something will work, I am very interested in trying it. The issue is that we haven't seen it work. Now Huntsville is a large city they did this sort of, but you had to do drops. You had to pay for the drops. And so the cost to an ISP is still probably itching up close to a thousand dollars to acquire a customer. Dane, how much does it cost to acquire a customer in the model that, that you're suggesting? Because I think that's one of the limiters, limiters in, in getting customers on this model.
1: Well, and I don't, I don't want to throw, uh, I don't want to throw Google or Huntsville under the bus, um, but I will um, because that network was really designed for one carrier. It's ostensibly open access, and there's some limited open access capabilities. But because the carrier uh, pays for the drop and does that drop facility and owns it, and more critically, because it is a, um, it's a split passive optical network, there's splitters out in the field, it's really a challenging network to, to, to see as open access dark fiber. And I think they've labeled it as open access dark fiber but it would be very challenging for a second or third or fifth market entrant to go in there. This recipe requires um, a home run strand or two from the home and a jack in the home that is accessible to the consumer back to a hut location where ISPs can co-locate. And one ISP might deploy one brand or uh, protocol of equipment, another, another, one might offer one array of services and another uh, a different array. But to your point of we haven't seen this work and, and how, does a, how does a community gain confidence in this, you do need an anchor tenant. So if you say we've got 10,000 homes, we're going to uh, have those homes pay to build a dark fiber network to them. We need one or two service providers who are committing to come into those co-location facilities and deploy equipment and provide a retail service. And I think that's an important confidence component, but there's another piece of this, which is-
0: Can we hold on from that? I just, I, yeah. I feel like Travis hasn't talked long enough that I'm afraid <laughs> of what he's going to say next.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like the idea, I guess, if there was just a, well, it's the old, it's the CELAC model, right? Where you're gonna buy you're going to buy pairs of copper to the home and you can do choose to do with it what you want. You know, in that case, we would lease, I assume a dark fiber from, a home or a business back to the, um, the hut and then off we go. I mean, that, that's a very, it's so, a doable model. I, I guess I just, I still struggle because I deal with it every single day. There's a, there's been a pothole out in front of my house for the last two years that the city's supposed to deal with and they can't do that. And I want these same group of people dealing with my technology. That's where I struggle with it.
1: I certainly see that as a valid criticism and a concern. I think on the other side, if you have a community that has nobody deploying, they haven't managed to attract you or I or their incumbent cable operator to deploy or improve services, and they want to invest in the services, you're going to end up in an outcome where they have to maintain them. But to clarify, the, the, the business model that I'm suggesting isn't that you would lease dark fiber to the home, it's that the homeowners would invest in dark fiber from their home. And they might do that via a bond measure, a property tax payment, a utility user's tax,
0: a home loan we talked about um we talked about this in a, a show that i should have done is connect this with um with asfi with this or shaheen um last week and i'll just i think rye will make a note to put it in the, in the show notes along with this but um but yeah I, I i really like that Dane, you're talking about creatively financing this in in a way similar to what jeff has done in terms of creative financing this is a question that came up in the chat so i wanted to wanted to address it I feel like the model that, what you just said, Dane, suggests to me that we would not expect that a city would say, I kind of like what Chattanooga is doing. I'm going to bond it the same way and I'm going to build it and it's going to pay for itself in the same way. And I think this is another issue that cities have to deal with is that open access coming in the United States in 2020 is not something that will just generate enough revenues in the first five years to pay for itself, most likely.
1: Well, the the thing is cities are and should be averse to risk. And fundamentally, I don't think that they should need to worry about take rate or service fees or credit worthiness of service providers. The idea here is that the public, the homeowners collectively, based on a majority decision, decide that they wanna build a multi-million dollar fiber to the home network. And they're gonna pay for that over time in some way, like a utility user's tax or an assessment on their property tax, just like you would today if you're uh, repaving a road or upgrading a sewer system. And now what you have is a home with a tail, a home with fiber going from the home to the central point, And that's being paid for on your property taxes. You own that now. Now Travis or myself rent a rack in the hut or in the central location and we cross connect to those locations. And we don't, there's no need for record keeping or billing because the consumer says, please connect me to ISPA. And we send a technician in and and plug that in. There's no billing relationship with the city because the public has paid for the network. And uh, and it's attractive to us because we're not building a network. So we can now deliver a, a cost efficient service. And um, we haven't seen this model advanced, I think, because there's a lot of momentum around, you know, you have to manage and light a network. But I really think that it's uh, so a long-handed way to look at it.
0: I've been talking about this This model, frankly, solves the cost issue of digital divide. Um, it really drives the prices down. Um, you can put interesting requests on it. I will say that, like, one of the reasons we've been very successful about fighting Attempts to stop cities' ability to build networks is because most of the cities that have built networks have done it without using taxpayer dollars. Um, what you're proposing is a is a um, on the board totally transparent subsidy for building an open network which I love but I can imagine that Comcast will have a field day rallying legislators to say this is unfair and we can all laugh about it but at the end of the day we're not going to be giving millions of dollars to those folks in Sacramento to make sure that that we can keep this model going so I feel like that is the that I think is the biggest challenge to this model and I'm very happy to work with communities that want to overcome it because I think this model literally gets us I mean frankly I don't want to say this model like yours Jane Dane Jane and Jane Jeff, you're both close enough to each other that either one of these models gets us to the country we we want to be in terms of having access to everyone, everyone being on the internet, having choices, innovation, things like that. Um, so uh, let me throw it back to you, Jeff, because um, once again, you haven't said anything in a while.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the difference really, Dane, I'm not arguing if the city wants to put it to a vote. Great, I'm all for that. I think Chris is right that in in most cases they can't do that. It creates a, you, you create an opposition that may not be there otherwise. Where in our model, we just leave it to the subscriber to choose whether they want to opt in or not. But the key thing is on the technology side, what you're saying is complexity is the problem. Our whole premise is the way to solve complexity is with software. You solve complexity with automation, that's, I mean, in the world we live in, that's the way complexity gets addressed everywhere. Our model, we we sometimes will refer to it as data center to the premise. So we really software defined networking has primarily been implemented in the data center, to some degree in the enterprise, but primarily it's been implemented in the data center. And so we took that model of what's been implemented in the data center and said, all right, how do we overlay this onto a city? This this same functionality, and and really what we're doing is what you want to do physically in terms of plugging somebody in and unplug them is we're doing that with software and automation and and this SDM protocol. So it's, we would argue that you're still technically at a siloed model. And what it reminds me of is the first time I went into a data center and I would see company A partition from another company with a cage that's, that's my strongest memory of going into a data center. There was a physical cage to separate this company's rack of computers from that company's uh, rack of computers. We don't see that cage anymore because those physical problems are all solved with software. And and we would argue we're much more open to innovation in our model because we make it easier for the telemedicine company. I mean, if you're, if you're going to give an ISP control of the last mile, then what about some other company that wants to do something dynamically across that network connection? We can do it because we've got virtual machines, we've got containers at the edge. So our our whole premise is that everything interesting is going to happen in software at the edge. And so go ahead.
1: I would respond to that and say that everything interesting will happen over the top. In the long run, it's true today. In the long run, the internet is the application, all of the stuff that will come over it. And you think about, um, you know, cable TV is a great example, right? It used to come in over a coaxial cable and now it doesn't matter. You're on Wi-Fi, you're on a tablet, you're on a television, doesn't matter. Television and being entertained is now an app. And um, so you know, I get the idea that there might be some future innovative application that requires layer two, but I've, I'm, I'm very skeptical that that complexity is required. And in the end, for ubiquitous access to whatever that resource is, it'll go over the top. Chris, you should have us on in a year.
3: And uh, <laughs> and we'll see if anything mm-hmm. is happening at Layer 2 in an automated no, way. No, I think this
0: is good oh. because this is, I mean, you know, this is, um, I, I just go back to like this very good, reasons that engineers will say one or the other and the people that follow this very closely will focus on why trends will go one way or the other. And, and I just think that one of the reasons i like both of you having both of you on is I think you're interested in knowing you're not going to be interested in lying about the results of next year, but if we see these, these applications develop, I'm, I'm very interested in it. Um, one of the things I wanted to make sure was very clear to people who are listening, um, is that both of you are also proposing something that we don't see proposed by cities, um, which is uh, that the service provider is not paying for the infrastructure, or is not paying for access to the infrastructure. Most cities are contemplating where there's open infrastructure, you charge a fee per line. And you're proposing that once again, we adopt the road model, which would be UPS does not pay per house it goes to and uses the roads to get to, it just uses the roads as it sees fit. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, but, but this is something that I think is really interesting. It further drives the price down, but it does then put more pressure on the public to finance it, whether it's through, um, you know, a, a user fee upfront as Jeff does, which can be amortized over many years or via, you know, a public bond in the way that is that proposing. And, and I mean, I, you know, this is a show that mostly i think attracts uh, people who are deeper into this than, than cities but cities should be trying this like this is the time to be trying to figure out how these different models would work well now travis let me give you a, a chance to to jump back in
2: well i guess i honestly i kind of like both models i like jeff's model because the barrier of entry is real easy to get into and i could be the five dollar internet guy in Ammond or wherever it is and because
0: my it's product. You so, should drive there. You should take I mean, your, your 5G mean, modem I mean, and go there.
2: Because because I'm the same as everybody else, right? Where it's just a homogeneous, I mean, okay, maybe I can put a content server a little bit closer. That's about all I can really do in, in, in Jeff's model. So, yeah, But in Dane's model, now Dane and I can actually compete because maybe Dane's a GPON guy and I'm an active Ethernet guy. Now I have something I can market to and I can actually differentiate myself uh, from Dane and Dane, the same thing here. No different than what we do with CenturyLink in Minneapolis. CenturyLink is a GPON network. We're an active Ethernet network. Yes, so,
0: that's the big difference between you
2: two. So what do you think we do? We promote the hell out of you know, the, that technical thing. The part I'm totally confused in both of these models is, and this is coming from a guy who's probably knocked on 3,000 doors. Are you proposing that I go up to a future customer and say oh, hello, Mr. Customer, I'd like to raise your taxes to pay for internet. And they will turn around and look at Comcast and go, yeah, but I know it's expensive and it sucks and I got to call them every year, but they're not going to charge me more. And, with ta- and just the way taxes work here in Minneapolis, they charge us for something called the Metrodome, which was some stadium for sports players back in the eighties. We're still paying the tax. They tore it down and stuck up a new one. So the tax is never going to go away. So I guess I would just ask, how are these networks going to be funded?
0: So Travis, let's just be clear though. Yeah, we there's multiple instances in which conservative and uh, liberal places have voted to either increase their taxes or to use their taxpayer dollars to build networks like this. In any event, you are not the public face of that campaign.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just wondering because someone's got to pay for this, right? So the, you know, and these things. I mean, I know how much my debt is right now, and you know, I don't know if, if Dan's flush with cash right now, but. You know, debt service through the nose. In it does have a new these, ring these, Yeah, the, these okay. networks are not cheap. So, are you? I just don't. I'm not sure. I totally understand how these <laughs> networks get paid. Well, Sorry. I mean,
0: One other thing to just keep it light, which is that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dane is building underground in San Francisco. You're building underground in oh, Minneapolis.
2: Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. He's got it way worse than I have. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, to be clear, we're building aerial in San Francisco. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know,
1: our, our networks are in San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley. I mean, it's the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, it is an expensive place to build. Um, you know, Fundamentally, what we're talking about is asking the public, does, do you hate your provider? Does your internet suck? And just like today, we go to the public and we say, do your schools suck? Would you like to pass this bond measure, which is going to make your schools better? Uh, would you like to make the libraries better? And the public passes bond measures and they accept um, the outcomes of those. And yes, sometimes that means a stadium, which is you know not where I'd spend my money, um, but it needs to be a, a majority or a supermajority in some cases vote. And if everybody in that town agrees that their internet is really poor and if, uh, if the bond measure says we can raise money and pay for it over 20 years, which is something I can't do. I can't raise 20 year money. I also can't pay the interest rates that a city can, right? Mm -hmm. They get very good interest rates. And so if, if the city says to build a dark fiber network, that's going to last 50 plus years to every home and to pay for that over 20 years is going to be a $300 per year assessment on each property's property tax or a $20 a month assessment on your water bill. Uh, for the next 20 years but what you've built then is an optical network that's gigabit plus capable to every home that goes back to these central points and here's one or two carriers who've said gosh we're ready Uh, if that network existed we would offer services over it so that's the premise
2: and who's going to pay the legal fees to fight Comcast, CenturyLink, Frontier? Well, the cities stream. will. I mean, this
0: is the cities. Oh, is, no, no, no. We learned that they won't. Well, Travis, in that case, you're right. They won't. But on they the other won't. hand, Lafayette, nope. so empirically, Lafayette spent $3 million roughly in legal battles over like five years for the right to build their fiber network. So there's, there's different experiences with different folks. I, I, mean, I
2: would be real interested to talk to that guy because whoever ran that program in Lafayette had where, you know, but I've never met anyone that works at a city that's like, yep, I'm willing to take a five-year battle to get this passed. And, yeah. there. Okay. So there's one example.
0: No, do, there's, do multiple, think, yeah. <laughs> there's multiple. Monticello, Minnesota um, went through a, a program. Oh, yeah. And, and that you was know.
2: a fiasco. Right, <laughs> Arbig's running that network now. That's not even being run by the city anymore.
0: Well, the city still owns it, and actually, I just did an interview <laughs> with Jeff with um, Jeff O'Neill, not Jeff Christensen, who's on the screen. Um, but about that, my point is just that many cities have gone forward. Your premise is that cities will be scared off from the lawsuits, and there's just well, people. okay, cities, some cities will be. Some cities. Well, will be. how about
2: cities like San Francisco on. or Los Angeles or Dallas? Like, well, if San Francisco or, would stop I mean, having
0: they'd... its top officers indicted, we could talk about. It. <laughs>
2: I'm talking like, how about an NFL market? Are there any of them doing it?
0: I don't think so. I don't think this is okay. an NFL market kind of thing right away. I mean, the I think it's is, a small those thing. Those large markets
1: don't have the same problem that these small markets that have been neglected have. And fair, I don't think fair, we fair. get a majority of voters in Los Angeles or San Francisco saying, my internet is so awful or unavailable here that I'm... I want to spend a a small assessment for the next 20 years to build a new network, but in a small town that's been passed by, by everyone, I think you're going to have a a substantial majority saying, yeah, we want to build and own our own network. And if the majority vote to do that, you know, whether it's building a new library or a new elementary school or repaving a road or running fiber to homes, I think that's a really survivable legal challenge.
2: Doesn't and it go back that, to our first conversation though? Is if they if the FCC sets the speed limit at 25.3, now all your wisps and all these other players can function. I mean, if if they naturally set it at, I don't know, let's just say for conversation gig, and all those dollars that are getting pumped into these markets would have to go into fiber networks instead of these well, alternate it's, networks, it,
0: there's sort of a miscon- misconception. In this and that, I think, Dane, you're talking about towns that are like fifty thousand, a hundred thousand people. Um, those are areas where this the FCC definition doesn't matter as much for the these subsidies. Um, but yeah, we're, not, we're, we're running, you so know, I don't we want to. have to, to really go to closing comments around. here soon. Go ahead, <laughs> <laughs> the passion is so great here. No, go ahead, Dane, we'll, but you know, but just no, be aware not, that we're running out of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not
1: um, trying to address markets where subsidies are available. Like, if if a market has no service and subsidies are available and the municipality wants to apply for those subsidies or a carrier does, well, then whoever has the best lowest cost proposal should win those subsidy dollars. Um, What I'm thinking about, Travis, is, you know, markets, you know, you've got a a market of 50 or 100,000 homes where the majority do have some level of service, but we all who live here agree that it's awful. Uh, That carrier needs to either step up and improve that network or we, the majority, are going to vote to, to buy our own network. And, uh, and the answer isn't for the incumbent carrier to, to sue the city. Uh, it's going to be for the incumbent carrier to upgrade their network and convince the public that they don't want to take that risk and invest those dollars.
0: Also, fair enough. Fair so, enough, the, yeah. Travis, don't forget that we're talking about some of these cities are dealing with MediaCom versus Frontier. We're not talking about Comcast. The, the, we're not talking about the paradise of Comcast versus CenturyLink here. Um, but then the other piece of it is also is CenturyLink is now doing this in in Saint um, in Springfield, uh, Missouri, uh, where the city has built a network, not exactly the way that we've talked about, but nonetheless, the concept is strictly there, and so there's a world in which century link which should be really be called level three uh, at this point which i guess has changed its name to something else that's dumb lumen, um,
2: L- lumen or something now Lumbus. right yeah, yeah.
0: I it just reminds me of the Final Fantasy games that I love to play. Um, but anyway, like you can imagine a world in which a, a company like that starts to use this model then. And so the question, you know, and let me ask, is there any like compelling points that anyone wants to make? Because I feel like we got to a point that I was expecting in terms of illuminating some of the differences, important decisions a community has to make. And the fact that Travis will try just about anything just to get a sense of the empirical results rather than making his mind up ahead of time, uh, which I appreciate. <laughs>
3: Um, I'll just, I'll weigh in with Travis that we build ethernet networks and not Pond networks. So I'm gonna line up with you there, Travis.
0: Woo, there
3: you go. (laughs) Um, And you know, we've kind of bounced back and forth between business model issues and technology issues. And so we probably should have divided
0: this up into two different buckets. We need a better host. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think what
2: I'm hearing, the moral of the story is people are getting hooked up. All three of us are hooking people up, providing a better experience. I, I think the models are interesting, I guess, because I'm swimming in debt. I'm always very careful to really be too gung-ho about letting c- people, I guess, overbuild us. Not that they ever would, but there's always that potential fear.
0: And and I would just say, based on what you just said, Travis, is that I, not enough, we don't have cities that are really trying what Dane is doing. And I, and I think we should. Um, not because I think that I know which the best model is, but because I would like to see it in action. And, and i like to see it in a couple of places. I mean, I think, Jeff, I'm very excited because we're gonna see the MN model in more places. It's being built today in at least three places. Um, and and we're gonna see many more of those in coming years. And I think we should we should have cities that are trying the way Dane is proposing it, and then we can come back and look at the lessons learned.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna go to town. We'll come overlay our software after the, the silos <laughs> are
2: broken. <laughs> So, so how, so how, well, how do we? That is one of the nice things an...
0: about Dane's model. You got to say is that Dane's model decomposes nicely. Uh, you can do anything with that network once it's been built. I mean, um, if you want to change the way it's being done, you're not like necessarily locked into a technology or a business model.
1: Well, you can imagine a scenario where it fails. Uh, no service provider shows up. Well, the city can then become like sort of care of last resort and light their own network and just deliver internet over it. And it can become an EPB in the end. So it's really very little risk.
0: I think you're approaching malpractice if you put a shovel in the ground without having a, a kind of a anchor tenant, like you'd suggested. <laughs>
1: Clearly. Yeah. Okay, Dane, we'll see you in a year.
2: Perfect. All right.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> maybe we'll do this in That's person. For an application that, 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 that uh, argues for the complexity.
0: Yeah. Thank you, everyone. I've, I've enjoyed this show. Um, judging from the chat room, I think, people were intrigued so uh, I really appreciate it and I look forward to talking to you all in a year maybe even before then about different things because (laughs) y'all have interesting points of view on lots of things so I'll I'll